Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, um, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, um, and in the studio we have Jacob and Zane. Okay, so we have... Uh, our, um, before I start, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kula Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect to Elders past and present, um, and that, you know, sovereignty was never ceded. Um, and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. Hear, hear. Um, so, um, t- we've got a pretty good program lined up um, today. So, um, from 7.15, we're going to be playing a pre-recorded interview that was done by um, Lali uh, from Dick Nichols um, about, you know, the kind of intense situation that's still happening right now in Catalonia because they've just recently, I think a few weeks ago or a week ago, declared independence. So the interviews get a focus on kind of like what is what is happening there and what is kind of the ramifications of that. And then at 8.10am, we're going to be doing an interview with um, a feminist comedian called Kirstie Mack, you know, to have a bit of a general chat with her about her experiences with sexism as a female comedian, the problems with sexism in um, comedy, um, and also, you know, what could be done better. And... um, that's kind of like in light of kind of like all these sort of allegations and that were, that are true, thrown towards um, uh, quite a well-known male comedian, um, Louis C.K. And in course, everything that's kind of happening around the Me Too campaign in terms of, you know, celebrities, uh, female celebrities kind of like, you know, calling out, you know, male celebrities for, you know, sexism and sexual assault, etc. All right, um, so uh, I guess the first thing we kind of talk about is, um, you know, it's fantastic in, um, that the marriage equality survey results are now out. Woo! And um, it got there were, um, almost every, well, every state, not almost, every state voted yes. Um, and overwhelmingly, um, 61% uh, Australians overall voted um, um, for yes. Um, with different variations across the different state. I know um, Australian Capital Territory had a yes, um, a percentage of 74%. Um, Melbourne, it was, I think, around 63 to 64%. And uh, But overall, I think, interestingly enough, New South Wales probably had the lowest of 58%. But looking at the statistics, it actually had the highest number of yes votes over Melbourne, like you had a significantly num- higher number of yes votes um, as opposed to Melbourne. Um, Just because it- of the comparative size of the cities. Yeah. Sydney's such a big city. Yeah. And Sydney, I think, covers more more area than, say, Melbourne. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, overall it was um, 
it was definitely a great result and there was a there was a great um there was a fantastic kind of rally or action sort of outside the state library when the survey results were announced you know yeah, that was, was excellent just an amazing amount of energy and um you know being um, uh, um amazing amount of energy on the day and then of course there was the marriage quality results party at the Strades hall yeah I, I came along to that and i just thought it was going to be a bit of a shindig in trades hall itself yep so I was pleasantly surprised when I got there and saw that they'd blocked off the street mm. and there was just a sea of rainbows and a huge queue to get in. Yeah. yeah. I think a, it's I think it's quite festivus. Some good credit to, to be given to the Victorian Trades Hall for taking on this campaign. Yeah, that's excellent. And um, you know, I'm hoping like, you know, one of the things I hope from the consequences of um Victoria Trades Union taking the campaign is, you know, a lot more young people getting engaged with the union movement and actually joining unions because I think the youth membership for trade unions at this point is still quite Perilously low. low, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, credit should go, I think, to Sally McManus as well. I think that's probably... It's partly a hallmark of Vic Trades Hall being one of the more progressive um, trade union uh, umbrella organisations, but I think also... The ACTU under Sally McManus has been a lot more vocal about supporting mm. the equal marriage campaign, mm. and uh, yeah, yes, yeah, I that, just want to talk about that it. kind of fusion of the trade union movement and social movement. That's that's really important. So yeah. it's good to see. I think on one thing I'd like to talk about um, is there's an article. This is an article written by Lisbeth um, that they wrote um, before the survey results um, were released, and it's basically making this argument that you know. Um, if you know, it's likely that we're going to get a strong yes vote, and yep, we have. Um, but the fight for marriage quality still isn't over quite yet, um, because basically um, the the parliamentarians are still you know debating um, the bill that's going to be put forward, and that hasn't been put into legislation yet. But I guess the main kind of concern that Lisbeth kind of raises here is that basically. Um, in terms of um, in terms of what bill gets passed, the right are really pushing hard on, you know, trying to water down any kind of marriage legislation um, that gets put forward by basically adding any kind of discriminative kind of things that mm. you know basically allow people the right to be bigots, license to be bigots. Um, fortunately, the fortunate news is probably the worst bill of them all um, has gotten has basically been dropped, um, but. Um, Lisbeth um, does, although there is a bit of debate about this, um, does raise some concerns about the private members' bill being put forward by Western Australia Liberal Senator Dean Smith. Um, because, I mean, despite the fact that it's, um, it doesn't have, you know, as much uh, terrible things as some of the other bills that were put forward by other Liberals, but it does, um, as Lisbeth writes here, the Smith bill expands significantly on existing religious exemptions in the Sex Discrimination Act. It would enable churches to refuse to marry gay and lesbian couples and civil marriage celebrants to register their objection to marrying same-sex couples. Um, um, they write here, it is objectable that churches should be able to refuse to marry people on religious grounds, but to allow private citizens performing a secular marriage to do so sets a dangerous precedent in terms of saying um, regulatory. Smith has argued that this bill provides essential protection to religious freedom. Um, this refrain has been taken up by the Christian right in its campaign against um, marriage equality. Um, but at the same time, um, 
one of the things that Elizabeth um, brings up with this bill, I mean, this bill, I mean, some of the things are not that bad. It's like at this point, this bill is being supported by the Labor Party. Um, I think it's being supported potentially by the Greens. But I think Elizabeth also kind of alludes that there is concern that, you know, that there's got to be all the, it lays a basis for all these amendments to kind of be put for when it gets debated in Parliament that would, you know, um, be quite harmful to LGBTI people and basically seeing that, you know, we can't, you know, stop in terms of mobilisation and if, like, we need to, you know, keep up the pressure for, you know, a really, a, a bill that doesn't include any kind of religious exemptions mm. or any enshrined rights for who, bids. Who's that repugnant human being who used to be at the IPA and who then put forward that um that senator? Who, who put James Patterson. Yeah. What a what a vile human being he is. Actually, the, the fa- uh, I think the interesting thing is, is I'm not even sure if he's actually a Christian. As far as I know, he's not even religious. As far as I know, um, but he's still trying to put forward. I these. think IPA parrot is his religion. Yeah. Institute of Public Affairs. Well, he's um he's quite notable because he's one of the youngest Australian Liberal senators. Mm. Um, but he basically you know supports thing. He basically you know. He's quite well known and prominent for saying things basically that workers don't deserve to get penalty uh, rate, be paid penalty rates. Mm. Well, so he put forward that bill that had all of those horrible uh, exemptions and basically legislated to create a kind of a, a sort of apartheid, you know, queers at the back of the bus kind of scenario. Uh, he quickly withdrew that bill, but what you're saying about the idea that it's it's possible that all these horrible amendments are going to crop up as this Smith bill is debated, mm-hmm. I think that sounds about right because I can't see why Patterson would have withdrawn his bill so quickly. So maybe that was the backroom yeah. deal. That well, was- that's what he, he's basically admitted that the reason why is because the de- um, Smith bill had more support, um, which what it means is not that he necessarily agrees with the Smith bill, but if the Smith bill has more support from say, his liberal mates, mm. um, that means that he can see a, a way of manoeuvring with it to put fraud, you know, amendments and mm. et cetera as it's get, as over the course of its um, being um, being debated. Um, of course, you know, and uh, in in other funny news, um, Tony Abbott is apparently now taking credit for the same-sex marriage win. What? In some kind of twisted way. He, like, opened up the process by arguing against it somehow. Um mm. I think it is, and of a course, slime bag. and of course, Peter Dutton is apparently he's apparently going to vote yes on any marriage equality bill um, mm. after being so adamantly against it. Like the 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 kind of gigality of these kind of op- the opportunism for some of these politicians. Mm. Um, actually, something I want to kind of discuss as well. Um, I think we might, might be good spending a bit of time discussing because we're you know we're talking um, discussing this in the car, but. There's um, on the way here, but there's like this, um, you know, one of the the facts of the marriage equality survey is um, the highest no votes were actually recorded in sort of certain electorates, um, Labor held electorates in the wet and and Western Sydney. And now, and there's a new angle racist are now coming up with um, in light of this postal survey in that. Um, this kind of basically this argument that it was migrant communities, um, especially migrant communities in the West, um, that it were driving the no vote, um, which is, you know, as we can discuss here, is problematic for a number of reasons. I mean, I think the first reason is um, basically 
a lot of the, I mean, we can acknowledge, yes, there's conservative elements in the migrant communities, but these, these migrant communities aren't the one in power who are pushing, you know, uh, the, you know, the harmful, you know, propaganda um, that the no campaigns were sure. They're not mm. the ones leading, they weren't the ones leading no campaign. It was actually, for the majority of them, white Christians who are in positions of power. Mm. Um, and also the second thing is basically, you know, when it comes to being an anti-racist, you don't, you don't, um, you don't express your solidarity with oppressed groups on the basis of their so-called holiness. Like, for example, I'm very suspicious of people who say who defend, you know, refugees and migrants on the basis of, or I have a migrant friend. He, they are very nice, or they're one of the good ones. They're one of the good ones. Yeah. Um, like, you know, if you're a committed anti-racist, you should stand with, you know, oppressed groups on the basis of the fact that it's a complete injustice that these people are being mistreated on the basis of their skin color and background. Hmm. Um, and uh, and an, another another thing that you know, basically arguing against this kind of racist kind of myth that's getting floated around in light of the poster survey. Um, uh, one of the biggest targets has been the Muslim community. Now, of course, there's Muslims who are conservative. At the same time, there were actually Muslims who are organising, you know, for the yes vote um, under the um, banner of Muslims for Marriage Equality. Mm. Yet, at the same time, Muslims also make a very small percentage of the population. Um, so even if every single Muslim um, voted no, um, um, they were they would have. The, they would have been, the, the no vote probably still would have lost because they still make up a very low percentage of the population and they would have even made up a big proportion of the no vote to begin with. Hmm. It would have been impossible for them to make up even 40%. I, I'll be keen. I reckon there's going to be some good analysis of this uh, over the next sort of couple of weeks. A couple of things is that some of the seats in Sydney that had the highest yes vote hmm. are some of the parts of Sydney that have the highest migrant population. Mm. I was just having a quick look at the Australian Bureau of Statistics website. Some of those inner city places like Grandler and Sydney uh, and North Sydney where you had a high yes vote, there's actually a heck of a lot of migrants in those parts Mm. of Sydney as well. So the idea that high migrant population equals high no no vote is just not true. And I think you could also analyse parts of Melbourne that have a significant migrant population that Mm. have also returned a substantial yes vote. Yeah. So that's one thing. And then another thing is potentially uh, this idea of internalised oppression and divide and rule. Uh, I can remember visiting Alice Springs a couple of, quite a few years ago now for a convergence against the Northern Territory intervention. Mm. And one of the things that we heard about at this convergence was the way that the uh, supermarkets and shops there would deliberately employ um, Sudanese or other... um, African uh, Australian migrants as security guards to kick out the Aboriginal people mm. uh, for public drunkenness or for the crime of being Aboriginal. Uh, so obviously, in in a lot of these places where you have this kind of apartheid mm. in Australia, you've you've just got arbitrary people getting arrested, kicked out of shops, mm. yeah, basically uh, for no reason. But there was this conscious strategy to 
divide the local African community against the Aboriginal community and mm. to sow the seeds of that division. Mm. And I feel like this this general principle of dividing the working class against itself, the, the further down you get in, into oppressed groups, the more sharp that that can sometimes be. Yeah. And and I, I remember also watching that um, go back to where you came from, that show on SBS about refugees and stopping the boats and blah, blah, blah. And one of the main people on there was a Liberal candidate who was a um, Vietnamese migrant and his family had moved to Australia, mm. they'd come by boat, this guy was now a Liberal Party candidate supporting this stop the boats policy and here he is on go back to where you came from going, yeah, here I am on this boat and I'm, I'm crying and I'm really conflicted but I still think we should need to stop the boats. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Oh, yeah, and um, that's what I've got. Like, you know, someone from a, from a migrant kind of whose family uh, comes from a kind of that migrant background, a Chinese migrant background as well. Um, another kind of element... This is something also put forward, and this is actually a criticism of the Yes campaign. Um, one of the other um, criticisms put forward of the Yes campaign in relation to this whole response to this kind of racist myth that's kind of being parroted around is basically the argument that, you know, the Yes campaign was actually, I think the reality is this is true, it was a very Yes, I mean, not a very white-dominated kind of campaign. In fact, the Yes campaign didn't put much resources into bilingual um, materials. Mm. It didn't put much um, resources it put a lot of resources in, into campaigning in the city seats. I mean, a good example is um, Tony Abbott's electorate, you know, actually got a very high yes vote. And, of course, you know, probably the re- strong reason why is not because of the so-called holiness or inherit more socially progressive views of, you know, of that electorate, um, because, you know, they wrote in Tony Abbott. <laughs> um, but because, you know, they actually, there was actually quite a strong effort in terms of campaigning in that particular area for the yes um road and mm. whereas you know a lot of these suburbs um were quite neglected in course um in terms of the yes vote and in terms of a whole lot of other political mm. campaigning and organizing and networking that mm. happens and yeah so i think the l- fact that the yes campaign really lacked bilingual materials is actually a, a crime for the yes campaign um but also you um zane you're also correct that the, you know there's always this pressure you know, for you know, migrants who are coming to um, to Australia as a point of assimilation to actually adopt the kind of racist views that are being pushed by the top. I've always found this in my refugee rights campaign, campaign where there's always this you know one migrant who comes up and you know curls abuse, basically saying that the refugees should go back to to where they came from, mm. etc. Despite the fact that. As like that Vietnamese migrant you mentioned, who's now lip, who was running for the Liberal Party, they come from the same background, and that is just part of the the kind of ideology of what you know capitalism wants to do with racism. It wants to divide and rule. It wants and it and it see. I think that was the whole idea behind this this ramping up of xenophobic refugee policy by John Howard mm. is that it it taught. Um, I don't know, Aussie battlers, Howard's Aussie battlers, to to look down and, and to attack people below them it created this kind of hierarchy. Mm. And they're, sure, there's people above you attacking you, but if, as long as you attack someone below you, as long as you find someone worse off than you and you kick them in the head while they're down, then at least you're kind of... 
you're defending yourself from being attacked from above. As long as there's someone else but worse off than you that you're attacking, mm. then you're a bit higher up the food chain than them and you're a little bit safer. Mm. Anyway, I think I'm closing up this discussion a bit now. Um, I think the basic point is I think we, you know, we... Um, in light post the postal survey, we should not, you know, buy into this kind of racism that the, you know, the racists are trying to brush up. Well, it's just such a, it's just such a vulgar and ridiculous argument. It's mm. basically saying my xenophobia and nationalism and hatred of migrants is justified because of how some people in Western Sydney voted. It's yeah. just such a rubbish oh, of course, argument. And, the, and, of course, the same people um, who are playing this up, like Andrew Bolt, they were against... They, they've never been stood with LGBTI people. Absolutely mm. never. They've never supported them. They're only using, um, using this as just a battering ram to attack people they hate, which is migrants and people of colour. Mm. That's all there is to it because they're, people like Andrew Bolt are unlikely... You know, there's commentators that just want to parade their racist views and they mm. would look through any angle to push it. <laughs> and I'm I'm friends with a, a comrade from Sydney from Solidarity, the socialist organisation, Amy Thomas, and she made a good point. And she said it was not people in Western Sydney who enacted the marriage ban in 2004 and it has not been people from Western Sydney who have policed that ban and perpetuated it for the last 13 years. Mm. That is... For almost down to the T, white politicians in Canberra who have yeah. been behind this. Mm. All right, I might we'll play a quick um, announcement and then we'll move on to um, playing a pre-recording of our first interview for the program. My name is Selva Cooler Chelvin, and I am fighting for my life. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have to flee your own country, spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas, and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorised even more? Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government, in our name, treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position. Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees. 10am every Sunday at 3CR 855 on the AM dial. So say I'm not a worthless human being Cause no one needs a worthless human being My family need a worthwhile human being Alright, um, we're going to play a pre-recording of an interview that was done last night by um, Lali of Dick Nichols. Um, Dick Nichols is like the European correspondent um, for Green Left Weekly um, and he lives in Barcelona so he's been basically at the forefront of a lot of the major developments that have been happening in Catalonia. So we're going to play this interview now. <coughs> Welcome to 3CR again, Dick, and um, it's been a while since we spoke, and a lot of things have happened since we spoke last. The um, situation at the moment is that the elections have been called for the 21st of December. Uh, maybe we should explore the, the reactions so far on both sides and all the different groups that uh, there's so many organizations around this having different views. 
um, what's left unity looking like? The the elections were called as a, it was a bit of a surprise to people because what people thought was that the Rajoy government, uh, having taken over the Catalan government and um, sacked the elected government of Puigdemont, as the Premier Puigdemont, what people thought was they will intervene, they will straighten things out as they see it to help themselves to implement their policies and they won't risk an election for until they think they've got the situation under control. So it came as a surprise when they called the election straight away and there's a lot of theories about why that was, um, which I won't go into here, but one of them was that they came under pressure from the European Commission, that they couldn't just <coughs> turf out an elected uh, government and then not have an election, another election. Well, another theory was that they thought this would uh, disorient the pro-sovereignty and pro-independence forces in Catalonia so much that, that they would have a, um, they, when I mean they, that is the, the pro-unionist forces would have a big, big advantage. Um, what happened rapidly was that the pro-independence forces who had an initial reaction of, well, this is a completely illegitimate election, correctly so, realised that they had to participate mm. because otherwise, otherwise what would happen is they would just hand all 40 years of Catalan building, Catalan administration, Catalan institutions over to the enemy, to put it bluntly. Mm. You know? mm. So all the, all the forces on the pro-independent side, that is to say the, cons the conservative nationalists who are associated with the uh, Democratic Party here, mm -hmm. the centre-left nationalists, which is the Republican left and the um, anti-capitalist Na left nationalist, which is the uh, People's Unity List, which the CUP, as we call them here, uh, they will all stand. Um, <clears throat> the big discussion was, was there going to be a single list? And there's a lot of pressure coming from the outgoing president or the actual president, who's, of course, in exile in Brussels, Carlos Puigdemont. Um, he's in exile in Brussels with four ministers. The other eight ministers are in jail in, near Madrid. Uh, he had put on a lot of pressure for a single ticket. And a lot of people supported that. And there's an actual movement here for a single ticket of all pro-sovereignty forces. They collected 55,000 signatures. They've collected 55,000 signatures, which means they can offer under the electoral law uh, that name. I think they've, they've chosen a name like Catalonia United or something. I can't remember the exact name. Uh, or United List. <clears throat> they can offer that name to the parties who undertake to try and have a united list. But there's not going to be a united list um, <clears throat> on the independent side because tensions within the previous, uh, within the government, between the, 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 uh, the Republican left and uh, the Democrats, were was very, very high, and people on both sides don't think that's really possible to uh, sustain in the new situation. It could be sustained when there was this project which was we're going to have a referendum and the people are going to decide, well, I've had a referendum, which was the referendum that was held on October 1st under, you know, police bashing, uh, bashing from the Spanish National Police and the Civil Guard. That phase is over. So people are in a, in a sort of phase of rethink. Also, uh, the Republican left would be very much influenced by the polls, which show them becoming the principal party easily uh, on the pro-independent pro side. Uh, so that explains, so that's what you're going to have on the pro-independent side. But Puigdemont is going to run a, a campaign called Catalonia, Together for Catalonia, which will be 
basically he's been given carte blanche by the Democrats to do what he likes. So he's going to run a sort of presidential campaign with <clears throat> candidates, most of whom will not be actual members of the Democrats. They'll be civil society figures, recognised, you know, recognised community leaders, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that has a good chance of getting a lot of support, given the sort of sentiment of loyalty there is amongst the broad in the broad movement here towards Puigdemont. And the Coup is running its campaign of itself, plus associated uh, supporting organisations, affiliated organisations, just as they ran in 2015. So that's that's on the pro-independent side. Um, on the unionist side, well, you've got what you'd expect, which is you've got the People's Party, which is here is just directly a voice of, of Madrid and which, you know, is saying you know, intervention, the intervention from Madrid under Article 155 of the Constitution is the best thing that ever happened to Catalonia. You've got uh, Citizens, which is the new right kind of youth organisation of the PP, but which is, you know, trying to which is trying to be modern and distance itself from the actual Francoist roots of the uh, of the uh, People's Party, uh, which has got the highest level of support on the unionist side, according to the polls. Um, and then you've got the Socialist Party of uh, Catalonia, which is uh, used to be uh, call itself Catalanist. But has shed over the years all its pro its Catalanist wing, including all the ministers from the last Socialist Party government, have all gone, um, and it's become so. Then you've so you've got a sort of three-way contest in the unionist camp between those three parties, and then in the middle, so I'm sorry to go on Catalonia in Comun, which is the left force which brings together people who are not necessarily independence, pro-independence, though it has a pro-independence minority within its ranks, uh, but, and the left, which supports, which says the most important thing is the social question. Uh, they have a proposal for the national question, which is that it be there'd be a negotiated referendum of a Scottish type. Um, but, of course, that just saying that means that you have to you say, well, we have to change uh, politics in the Spanish state across the whole of the Spanish state because you won't get a referendum of the Scottish type until <clears throat> the uh, Podemos and people like Podemos win a majority in the Spanish parliament. That's not going to happen anytime soon. So that's uh, Catalonia together. Um, so there, there you have it. And basically, uh, the big the elections are going to take the form of an massive scare campaign from Madrid about, you know, the economy is going down the drain. If these people get back in, we will still have a 155 intervention unless they swear on a stack of uh, Spanish constitutions that they're going to abide by the Spanish constitution. Uh, <clears throat> otherwise, it's just going to be the same. So what the, the message they're getting, they're putting out there is uh, if you want misery, if you want economic misery, if you want permanent stress, vote for the independent, the pro-independence camp. If you want to get back to a normal, decent life, vote for us. They have a big problem, though, which is that they've got to collect between 200,000 and 250,000 votes. And uh, that means the getting the participation rate, which here we're not, they're not compulsory elections. Not, um, here it's not uh, um, compulsory voting. Um, they've got to get the actual participation rate up to a historic high. 
So they've got to get people who are unpolitical and never voted or don't vote in Catalan elections because they're not important. They've got to scare them into going out and voting. And uh, that's what the campaign's going to be about. That, that uh, itself should mobilise people to want to uh, register to vote, surely. Yeah, it'll mobilise people on both sides, yeah. Yeah, but, but for every for every attack, there's a counter, there's a, there's there's resistance, and and of course this means that this Catalan election, so-called Catalan election, is actually a huge Spanish event. It's a Spanish election, hmm. which is taking place in Catalonia, um, because if the if the pro-independence forces win and they actually get more than fifty percent, and they in the last election they only got forty-eight percent, but because of the gerrymander here, they got a majority of the seats. Uh, if they win a majority of the votes, it becomes a crisis for the Spanish state, mm. uh, a real crisis, particularly as finally, after eight to ten years, the corruption allegations and charges against the People's Party government and the People's Party itself are starting to come home to roost. So you've got uh, – if that – if there's, you've got the, the sort of creeping crisis of corruption in the in the Spanish state, if the pro-independence forces win in Catalonia, that becomes not a creeping crisis but a real crisis. So you're saying there's a broad ticket uh, being uh, stood in the pro-independence uh, group. Cup is one, and you've got uh, Podemos standing separately? Yeah, Podemos is... Podemos's position, as summarised by Podemos, not Podemos, Podemos is part of a broader ticket called Catalonia mm. in Comun, Catalonia together, and they actually uh, had to have an internal poll to get that through. Uh, that's a whole another whole story which yeah, we yeah. don't have time to go into. No, but that that um, they they are standing alone of the seven part forces that are standing. They are not standing on either a pro-independence or a pro-unionist position. That's true. They're saying, let's replace the national question with the social question because that's what's most important. We have a, we have a reply to the, the national question, which is this agreed Scottish-style referendum, but let's get back to the social question because people are suffering out there, which is true. They he, may get a, an, an increased vote, but the polls aren't showing that. Yeah, the because the, the election is not about social issues. It's about independence. Oh, exactly. No, it's a, it's 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 basically a plebiscite about uh, independence for Catalonia, but being held in the in the guise of a normal uh, regional election. Mm. But what but the real content of it is is if you do you vote for the intervention from Madrid in defence of the constitution, i.e., what they call the like to call themselves the constitutionalist bloc, mm. or do you vote for the pro-independence bloc? That's basically what it's about. And then with Catalonia in Comun trying to say, but this isn't the key question, friends. You know, well, oh, good luck to them. But uh, you know, that's it is. You know, you just have to go into any bar at any hour of the day, and you can you can get that. Yeah, but but it's 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 actually quite confronting because on both sides you don't have a single ticket. There are multiple tickets running. That's what's confusing about the situation at the moment for me. Anyway, listening to well, you reel off all well, the because, rules. Well, because it's Spanish politics. Because you've got the the double axis. You've got the axis of the social, you know, mm. the right left axis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you've got the national. Uh, you know what you what position you adopt on the national question in the Spanish state, mm. and because you've got these two axes, it's like Rubik's cube. You know, you get all these different combinations of positions, which is why people, understandably, 
get disoriented by by politics in the Spanish state. But what you've got is inside the unionist camp, you've got a sort of left to right. Well, I wouldn't call you know, the Socialist Party left at all at all now, but not. they try to sound left. Mm. Um, and they, <clears throat> well, they, you know, effectively, if you oppose the right to self-determination, on what grounds can you call yourself left? That's an, that's how I would. That's the question I would ask. But anyway, within on the on the issues like. You know, neoliberal policies versus social policies. The Socialist Party is to the left of citizens, which is extreme neoliberal, and to the left of the Popular Party, which is just the party of uh, of privilege and clientelism. Clientelism. You know, it's the party you vote for so you can get your kids into private school. That sort oh, of God, stuff. Yeah. It's the party of deals. You know. Hmm. And then on the other side, you've got. Uh, the left, going from the left, which you've got the cook, which call themselves anti-capitalist, are anti-capitalist, see the struggle in Catalonia as a struggle for democratic rights in Catalonia, but also for democratic rights in the Spanish state and also for democratic national rights in Europe, uh, and which is all absolutely right. You know, that is to say a victory for the left, uh, sorry, a victory for nationalism uh, and the pro-independence forces in Catalonia would not just be a problem for the Spanish state. It's a problem for Europe. Uh, it's no it's no accident that uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, who is the European Commission president, uh, has given two speeches in which he says, no, 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 we're opposed to this uh, breaking up of Europe into smaller mm, bits and pieces. You know, mm. It's hard enough as it is. I'm trying <laughs> yes. to run this place with 28 <laughs> countries and you people want to have more countries. Come on. That's basically the tone. And then you have the centre-left, which is a scary Republican, Republican left. Uh, and the Republican left is like the party everybody joins if they're a patriot. Okay. Right? It's like the broad church patriotic party. Uh, what do you believe in? Oh, I believe in, uh, in, in, in small business getting you know, a better deal. Okay, you belong to us. What do you believe in? I believe in rights of workers. You belong with us. Mm. You know, it's sort of like the sort of old Irish nationalist parties before independence in Ireland or like, you know, Sinn Féin used to be before it all um, Fianna Foyle and, all, and these parties so it's like, you can go there, you can believe what you like but you're part of the family and the family yes. is <laughs> Catalonia, this is the, you know that's what it's like yeah. Okay, Nick, maybe you want to tell us a bit more about what's happening inside Podemos What's happened is, what happened inside Podemos, Podemos here the elected leadership in Podemos here had a position of they didn't support the referendum. They didn't support October 1 as a binding referendum. Yeah. But they supported they, – they became close to supporting it because they said, well, all these people have come out. There's been this tremendous social struggle. Um, we can't just say, well, that was nice, you know, but now let's go and have a real referendum when there's not going to be a referendum in, in, in sight. You know, there's no referendum in sight on any political horizon uh, that's realistic. Uh, so they went, they became uh, more and more, they felt themselves closer and closer to the pro-independence camp, not in that they supported independence because they voted against independence on the actual day of the vote uh, for independence in the parliament, but in the sense of being close to uh, the the movement here, which is close to the you know the struggle, the movement, especially after October one, when you had these amazing you know scenes where the actual referendum went ahead in the face of twelve thousand police trying to stop it, mm. 
Um, so they felt very close to that. Then, and when the election came, was called, their response was, this is the Catalan Podemos response, Catalan leadership was, let's see if we can't get a joint ticket of everybody who supports sovereignty. That is to say, supports the right to vote. So let's, they thought of a joint ticket that went from them right across to, you know, Puigdemont and Pedicat, which would be basically a ticket which said Catalonia has a right to decide, Catalonia will decide as it thinks it should decide. Uh, and this and it was implicit support, though they, they never got said this clearly, but it's implicit support for the, unilater the Unilateral Declaration of Independence on, on October 27. This set off alarm bells in Madrid where the position was, and the position is here with uh, Catalonia in commune, together, Catalonia together, Catalonia in commune. Uh, this set off alarm bells, which was, no, our position is neither intervention under Article 155, neither the intervention by the Spanish state, nor the unilateral de de declaration of independence. I mean, what their actual position is is still quite vague. It's mm. two negatives, two negatives, you know. So then what happened was that un from Madrid, the Pablo Iglesias leadership of Podemos said the membership in Catalonia had to answer a question. And they had to answer what they wanted. So, and they have the power to do that under the Podemos constitution. So they came in over the top of the local leadership and said, the Podemos membership here has to say yes or no to this question. And the question was basically, uh, do you want Podemos to participate with Catalonia en común, mm -hmm. Catalonia en común, on the same ticket with the name Podemos as part of the ticket? And that got up by 72% to 28% with a very high participation so the mass of the Podemos membership here supported that, which just reflected what we already knew, which was that there's, Podemos is ba in Catalonia is basically divided into thirds. There's a third of people who just don't want to change the uh, territorial, you know, the structural uh, relationship between Catalonia and, and the Spanish state. Mm. There's a third who are federalists who think, yes, no, let's redo it, but let's do it on a federal model. I give more powers to Catalonia, but within a single state. Uh, and then there's independentists, a third who are independentists. And basically the independentist third voted f against this motion, uh, against this this con consultation that had been uh, put in from Madrid, but everybody else voted in favour. As a result of that, the, member, the leadership here resigned. And now there's an interim leadership which is a sort of management committee which is basically aligned with uh, with madrid in this present context if you are ambiguous on the na national question and on national rights the right that's at this side and you're ambiguous on whether this october one was a referendum even with all the shortcomings that it had uh that you will pay a terrible price and that's what's happened mm. so we have to wait and see so Ah, so so the clarity to me seems to be lacking in the whole story you've just told us. But I guess from now on it's, it's a straight run to the December 21st elections and eh? the campaign will be on. Well, it's already on. And it's, I mean, the, the election campaign is going to be the, the, the Madrid government trying to use every dirty trick it can get away with. Um, and these are, I can make there's a whole list of these, but one of them is, for example, um, Catalans overseas get in touch with the Spanish consul, uh, consulate. Oh, I want to vote. Uh, please, can I want to vote? Can you send me the papers for voting? Oh, no, there's no election on at the moment. 
So there's a, on, on Catalan television last night, there was a very interesting thing for an Australian viewers. There was a young Catalan woman who's in Maruchidor in Queensland mm-hmm. uh, who appears on television and describes her experience in trying to actually get the ballot papers. And she rings up the embassy in Sydney and the answering machine says, uh, there is no elections. There are no elections on in the Spanish state at the, same, <laughs> at, at the present time. She rings up the uh, Spanish consulate in Brisbane and the Spanish consulate in Brisbane it doesn't exist anymore. It's just an answering machine. I don't know how much of this is deliberate and how much is incompetence. You never know. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, you know, obviously they know everybody in all the young people who have been forced to go overseas in search of work um, will vote pro-independence. Of course. So we're not going to help them. You know? no. That's that's one just one level. So the real content of the campaign is a huge scare campaign. And it will be an economic scare campaign about, well, you've already got 1,800 firms who've, you know, shifted their their administrative headquarters yeah, out of Catalonia that's right. because of, of instability. Do you want that to continue? It hasn't started to affect jobs yet, but sooner or later it will. Mm. I mean, that will be said day in, day out. Yep. And, of course, if, if you want to mobilise people who never vote, who aren't interested in voting here, uh, well, you go for the fear campaign. Of course. Uh, and that's what we're going to see. Okay, thank you, Dick. We'll catch up closer to the elections. Okay, Alali, thanks very much. All right, um, that was um, Dick, uh, pre-recording of our interview with Dick Nichols. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR at 8.55am. Um, Guten Morgen. So, yeah, we've got um, some... Uh, bit of a pre-recording to play but before we introduce that i'd like to talk about this um article that's in the latest green left weekly um it's basically um written by sue board and it's about um stopping uh, about new union anti-union laws and you know how we need to stand up to stop the war on what the workers um sue ball kind of opens up here by talking about how you know tony abbott was elected in 2013 um, on the promise that the coalition's proposed industrial relations legislation, work choices, was dead, buried and cremated. Of course, you know, obviously um, few workers would believe that the coalition would stick to their word and now only a matter of time bef- and construction workers, you know, thought it was only a matter of time before um, they were in the firing line. Now, four years from now, um, on after the Royal Commission to Trade Union Governance and Corruption and the reintroduction of the Australian Building Construction Commission, several um, unions have begun campaigning against other set of laws. Um, these laws have tame even innocence names like the proper use of workers' benefits bills, the corrupting benefits legislation, and the ensuring integrity bill. They also seemingly target secondary issues like superannuation, entitlement funds, or the abilities of unions to merge. But their their intent, as Sue Ball writes here, is to further undermine the effectiveness of unions and the hard-fought gains that workers have won over the past century. Um, Employment Minister um, Michelle... La Cash justified the enactment of the corrupting benefits legislation on September 11 by saying strong new laws banning secret and corrupting payments between employers and unions come into effect from today, ensuring Australian workers' interests are put first when workplace um, agreements are being negotiations. Um, and of course, um, speaking about the proper use of workers' entitlements, Cash then said. The Malcolm Turnbull government will introduce legislation to protect the benefits of Australian workers and ensure they are held for workers and not spent for other purposes. Um, and of course, you know, in response to that, 
Um, but as um, ACTU Secretary Sam Sally McManus knows, these new laws, you know, are an attack on democracy. The Ensuring Integrity Bill, for example, would disrupt union mergers, make it easier to disqualify union if- officials or deregister a union among other things. Um, everyone should be worried that this is an attack on democracy by interfering with the running of unions. McManus said, whenever the job of unions is made harder, it hurts all working people. That is time and money that we won't be able to spend raising wages and making jobs more secure. Um, in response, construction, um, forestry, mining and energy sector uh, union um, national um, secretary David Nonan has outlined exactly what the proper use of workers' benefits bill has been designed to do. He, he notes on the union's website that legislation could lead to the loss of apprentice jobs and the union's movement to do, uh, um, ability to deliver health and safety courses. Um, the bill seeks to control... Um, work entitlement funds which support workers who are made redundant and of course interest from these funds support health, safety and welfare programs, training and education in one of the most dangerous industries with the highest rates of suicide. Um, another thing that kind of with this um, the bill, if it were to pass, um, you know, it would actually restrict unions kind of ability to, you know, don't make donations to welfare charitable organisations. Um, and of course um, the ACTU has also being met pains to point out the shortcomings of legislation undermining superannuation funds. And of course, now talking a bit about in response to this, the ACTU is um, sort of launching a campaign around changing the rules and it's aiming at uniting workers to defend their interests and oppose the raft, raft of anti union legislation being put forward by the federal government. Um, of course, um, Sue Ball then puts forward kind of her political perspective here that, you know, we need, in terms of fighting against these attacks, um, we need to do more than just simply campaigning for marginal seats for the Labor Party. Um, the only way to beat the anti-working class onslaught from the coalition in their big business allies is not to fun- funnel workers' mobilisations into marginal seats. Um, to elect Labor politicians, we have to build a fighting independent movement that no political party or big business can feel safe attacking without fear of facing um, an attack, an enraged and united working class response. Hey. All right, um, so just quickly play a quick announcement. <laughs> If you love 3CR, then why not support us by setting up a regular donation? You decide how much and how often you donate, and once it's set up, you don't have to think about it. Monthly, weekly, annually, you decide, and there's no minimum amount. Your donation is also 100% tax deductible, and you can claim the entire amount back via your tax return, knowing you are directly diverting Commonwealth funds to keeping your favourite station operating. It's the easiest way to grow 3CR. So if this works for you, sign up. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate or call the station on 9419 8377. You're going to hear it now, blasting out your radio. All right, um, we're going to be playing a bit of a special recording. Um, basically, um, Senator Andrew Barlett um, gave an adjournment speech regarding the trials that are um, ha- in Alice Springs of the Pine Gap Pilgrims, which includes Paul Christie, Margaret Pesos, um Tim Webb, France um, Dowling, Andrew Payne and Jim Dowling. 
They were arrested playing and playing music instruments at Pine Gap and faced penalties of seven years and 42,000 under the Defence Special Undertakings Act 1952 in jury trials that commenced um, uh, November the 11th in um, 2017 in Alice Springs. We are bringing you part of his speech, um, and if for more information on the case, check out closepinegap.org. Senator Bartlett. Thank you, Mr President. Uh, I'd like to speak tonight about uh, something that's happening right now in uh, Alice Springs involving a number of people from my home state of Queensland. Uh, and it regards a trial that's occurring uh, about uh, some people who conducted a peaceful protest at Pine Gap quite recently. Uh, the Pine Gap spy facility, spy base, has been in operation now for uh, just over 50 years. Well, this original Pine Gap agreement with the US government was signed uh, in 1966. And in September last year, Several hundred Australians from a range of ages and backgrounds and professions and faiths uh, gathered in Alice Springs to mark the 50th anniversary of the signing of that Pine Gap Agreement and to protest against it and to continue part of what has been a very long tradition of protest uh, regarding the Pine Gap spy base. And it is worth emphasising that uh, the role of this base as a part of the global war machine has increased dramatically in recent times. So those concerns were expressed by many protesters through the 80s and 90s and early parts of this century are more valid than ever. Quote, um, esteemed academic and uh, uh, one of the foremost experts on this issue in Australia, Professor Richard Tanter, uh, he said, Pine Gap literally hardwires us into the activities of the American military. So whether or not the Australian government thinks, for example, an attack on North Korea is either justified or a wise and sensible move, we will be part of that. Our nation will be part of it. We'll be culpable in terms of the consequences and we potentially will get the blowback. Tell me about it. Uh, oh, well, we had a bit of excitement in the court uh, this afternoon. With, we had Mr Begbie from the Commonwealth Executive, the uh, Department of Defence come in to talk about the importance to national security of some of the evidence that the uh, prosecution was hoping to table and so some of this film footage and so we had a, a spirited discussion between Mr Begbie and Justice Reeves about why Mr Begbie should allow, be allowed to sort of drop in on the court case. So uh, it livened up the afternoon after a bit of a slow morning. Um, but we haven't had much cross-examination of witnesses. We had one witness and we got to ask him a little bit about why people were at Pine Gap, what kind of things about Pine Gap they might be protesting about. Unfortunately, his memory wasn't very good in that department. We've heard in the context of a very different debate this week a lot of talk about freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Now, last year, as part of those protests there, six Australian citizens entered the grounds of the Pine Base uh, Pine Gap base to sing songs and pray. That was the extent of their protest. Very much a faith-based protest. Clearly a non-violent protest. Uh, they were arrested, as occurs in these circumstances, but unlike almost every other circumstance where uh, such protesters have been charged with trespass, uh, this government and the current Attorney-General chose, and proactively chose, to prosecute 
these citizens for unlawful entry under the Defence Special Undertaking Act of 1952, a Cold War Act that was drafted to secure areas for British nuclear testing. That was the purpose of it, uh, but since expanded to enable the protection and almost ultimate total secrecy uh, of this spy base in the middle of the country. So it's an explicit decision of this Attorney-General to prosecute these people and right at this minute the trial is happening and the Commonwealth is explicitly seeking to jail these people. That's the sole reason the Attorney-General is using this Act uh, to try to get these people jailed, uh, potentially for up to seven years, for praying and singing songs of lament about the death that is enabled by the Pine Gap spy base. I fully appreciate some in the chamber and some in the community uh, do not support the intent of these Christians, uh, but uh, no one could doubt their sincerity. And I join with over 70 uh, Australians who put their name to an open letter to Senator Brandis that was published last Saturday in the Saturday paper. Since the time of these protesters, even more information, these protests, since the time these protests happened, even more information has come out about the key role uh, that Pine Gap plays in drone warfare and enabling and increasing and expanding war and clearly exacerbating uh, the fulcrum and the uh, conditions that enable terrorism to develop further. So I join uh, with those Australians in calling on the Attorney-General to reconsider his action to call for clemency and to seek to ensure clemency for these Pine Gap peaceful Christian protesters. Respect those calls for freedom of peaceful expression, freedom of peaceful political communication, freedom of peaceful personal expression of religious beliefs. And I would like to seek leave of the chamber for the letter, open letter to Senator Brandis uh, to be incorporated in the Hansard. Is leave granted? Yes. Leave granted, Senator Bartlett. I thank the Chamber for that, and uh, I do ask that uh, all Senators consider lending their support to this call uh, privately, if you wish, uh, to approach the Attorney-General and seek to get a different approach. So many of the people that have been part of these protests, every part of these protests, each one of them have had a significant component of them who have been peaceful protesters, who have sought to simply express the message of the Prince of Peace, as Christians call Jesus, and ask those Christian values that we hear talked about so often, including from many in Senator Brandis's party, to have them actually lived out in practice, not just in word. Uh, so on behalf of the Greens, uh, all of my other Greens colleagues put their name to this uh, letter, and I certainly express my same support for them, for these fellow Queenslanders, and uh, I'm not a religious person, but uh, I'd make the exception of uh, adding some prayers as well for their well-being and their outcome and for a change in policy uh, in regards to this dreadful part of the global war machine that is the Pine Gap spy base. Thank you, Senator Bartlett. All right. Um, you were just listening um, to part of Green Senator um, Andrew Bartlett's uh, adjournment speech in the Senate regarding the trials in Alice Springs of the Pine Gap um, Pilgrims, an update from one of the defendants speaking outside the court. Um, sentencing is expected to happen next week. Um, for more information on the case, um, check out 
um, closedpinegap.org and there's a letter and the letter is available at um, shaft.org um, forward slash project forward slash pine gap pilgrims um, p-i-l-g-r-i-m-s all right um so we're just about um to hit um 8 a.m um you're listening to green left weekly radio on the 855 a.m on free cr um and now since yep it's hit 8 a.m now um it's time for um the activist calendar Okay, um, so tonight at 5.30pm, um, as part of the weekly protests um, that are happening every Friday on, on, Green, on Green Left, uh, on, on the refugee campaign, um, which are expected to be happening every Friday until the siege on Manus ends, um, there'll be a rally at 5.30pm at the State Library. Um, just a bit of a special kind of announcement as well regarding that. Um, the Indigenous band Divide and Dissolve, um, they're playing at the Melbourne Music Festival on um, tonight. I think the, yeah, at the what what that cathedral is that's near Flinders Street. Um, it's I think it's St Paul's. Um, you know they're urging um, you know their fans and supporters um, to come to uh, outside the the church at nine pm um, in support of refugee rights. And I think there might be a possibility depending on how things play out, that the refugee rally will hopefully be occupying that um, intersection. However, last Friday that was made impossible um, by the presence of police. So we'll just see what happens on the night. Um, now, on Saturday, um, tomorrow, on November the 18th, there'll be a public meeting on uh, October 1917 um, revolution, um, the legacy and its lessons for today. Um, it'll be an afternoon celebrating and discussing the October revolution on its 100th anniversary. Um, this will be happening at 1pm um, with uh, um, at what, 1.30 with lunch from 1pm at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street. Um, it's hosted by Green Left Week and Socialist Alliance, and it will be featuring um, a special uh, video link from uh, Canadian Marxist historian um, John Riddell. Um, on Sunday, there'll be um, a run for Palestine at 10 a.m. Um, at assembling at uh, Tom's Block, uh, Livingo Avenue at the city. Um, not sure if registration's closed, but just search Run for Palestine um, Melbourne and in Google, and you might be able to find a link to where to register. Um, on Wednesday, there'll be uh, a speak-out, Stop Fair on Our Kids, um, Keep Young People Out of Out of Prison Facilities, Hear Speeches, Deliver a, pen, uh, a Petition to Jenny McCakos, uh, Minister for Family and Youth Affairs. Um, they'll be at 11am, 319 Spring Street Reservoir. And this is organised by Indigenous Social Justice Association. Um, there'll be a protest, Get Off the Fence, Bill Shorten, Stop Adani. Um, they'll be happening at 5pm at 12 Hall Street in Mooney Ponds. And there'll be another rally, um, Stop Adani protest at Downer's corporate office. Um, to give a bit more information, Downer EDDI is the key company responsible for the construction of Adani's destructive mine. Let's show them that they'll have no business as usual until we have prevented the mine from going ahead. Um, that'll be happening at 2 p.m. Um, 5 slash 5 forward slash 567 Collins Street. And that's on in the city. Uh, Friday, November 24. Yep. 
Um, there'll be on Saturday, the November the 25th, um, there'll be a solidarity conference. Um, Venezuela is not alone. Um, they'll be happening at 10 a.m., the MUA, at the 46 Island Street, North Melbourne. Um, the Resistance Bookshop will be having an end-of-year radical book sale, 25% off all stock, including books, pamphlets, and merchandise, new sale and second-hand stock. Donations of books are also welcome. Just call 9639 to arrange delivery or collection. Um, and it's going from 10am to 6pm from Saturday, December the 2nd, and also Monday to Wednesday, 12 to 6pm. Um, and this is going to be at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson. Street opposite RMIT. Um, Tuesday, there'll be a public meeting. Can we bring them here and prevent deaths at sea? There'll be the new international bookshop um, at the Shrades Hall, 54 Carlton, uh, Victoria Street in Carlton South. Um, on Friday, December the 8th, um, this is going to be quite significant, but um, there's going to be a public meeting. Um, Norman Finkelstein is going to be speaking on the Israel slash Palestine, forward slash Palestine conflict. Um, at 7pm at the Melbourne Convention and Exposition Centre. Um, so um, just search Norman Finkelstein, um, Australia, and you should be able to get a link to um, to book tickets for that. Um, it's likely to be potentially sold out. Um, on Sunday, December the 10th, um, there'll be a rally to end offshore processing to accept Rohingya refugees, um, and they'll be at 2pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. Um, that's actually going through all the announcements and we still have five minutes left. Um, I think I'm just going to go quickly play a song and they'll give me a bit of time to prepare for, um, to call in the next interview. Um, so actually there's also another event here I see, um, actually there's on Monday, November the 20th, um, marks transgender, Day of Remembrance, um, a day when the transgender community and allies gather to remember the victims of violence based on gender, identity, and gender expression. Mm. Um, to commemorate the day, Sally Goldner, Executive Director of Transgender Victoria out of the Pan Free will join us in lead discussion on the origins of Transgender Remembrance Day. Um, there'll be lunch apparently served, um, so that's going to be happening at t- from 12.30 to 2pm on Monday, November the 10th. Um, at the Level 5 Theatre at, at um, 121 Expedition Street. Um, you can, apparently space is limited, so you can book your spot at eventbrite.com.au. Just search Transgender Day of Remembrance um, to find the event. All right, so going what I was going to say before, I'll be playing just a quick um, short um, song um, to, yeah, basically, I think it's going to be Balu Rahman, The Last Connection. Connection. Let's go be playing. Someone else. It's like my heart. Burns. 
attention There's a magnet on my compass and I call it second guessing And it's stressing my connections to the lessons I've taught And I'm not quite even sure if I thought if my thought I'm hearing voices What's worse I listen to them but I feel like and not the dark in it that will be John Jowen Glimpses on my ears are hers to read It was supposed to be things are meant to be Play my role of who I be in traditional law Um, so, good morning, Kirsty. You're in the, on the line? Uh, good morning, Jacob. Hello, 3CR. Yeah. Right, I'm just going to introduce you first. Okay, so, um, in the stu- um, not in the studio, over the phone, um, we have Kirsty Mack. Um, she is a feminist female comedian. Um, in light of kind of like the stuff that's sort of happening around in the comedy world with this sort of um, allegations towards Louis C.K., we thought we'd interview Kirsty Mack about her, um, about, you know, experiences of sexism in the comedy world. But the other thing about Kirsty that we'll kind of like to make a mention for is um, Kirsty was actually um, part of organising um, those those protests. I think it was two years ago or last year. Again, I think it was two years ago because I don't think I was actually in Melbourne at the time. <laughs> it was November 2015. Yes, exactly. So that's why <laughs> I, was, I wasn't actually in Melbourne at the time. I was in Sydney um, yeah. where he organised, uh, she organised the protest against Julian Black, who was basically, I think... What was he again? I kind of oh, he, he called himself a pickup artist. He was part of a, a company called um, RSD. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, total douche. All right. Um, so I guess the first question um, I wanted to ask you, Kirsty, is, you know, as a female comedian, kind of like, you know, what is your kind of experiences and struggles that you've experienced with sexism? Yeah, sure. I mean... Um, I think it's been a bit of a double-edged sword because in some ways, when I first started 10 years ago, I moved to London and um, and because I was an outspoken Australian and a woman, I got a lot a lot more work than perhaps a man would have in my position because, you know, I was the token female in a lot of bills. And um, so that was a great opportunity. I was playing bigger rooms than perhaps I, I was 
at my experience level than I should have been. And um, so, it, it, in some ways, it's been it's been good, but in in most other ways, it's been um, a, more of a struggle. Um, and in, in a struggle, it's a struggle to um, to make friends. So it's a boys' club, and you know, to get gigs, you have to make friends with people, you have to network with people, and um, and it's it's a boys' club essentially. So you're usually asking men for a gig, and then doing a gig with mostly men. And, well, can you tell us, I mean, because clearly, you know, as kind of like an outsider, you know, observing all these kind of stories about, you know, Louis C.K. and actually some of the responses to it are quite interesting. And in fact, there's a lot of people when it comes to male comedians, there's a lot of people, you know, rushing to the defense of some of these male comedians, especially, you know, of um, this whole question, there's this whole question about, you know, political correctness um, with where, you know, male comedians get um, called out, you know, for, you know, making rape jokes. Um, yeah. And there's always, you know, people rushing to defend them of as if it's their inalienable right. And, you know, can you tell us more about, you know, th- those kind of problems of sexism in the comedy yeah. world? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, you know, comedy is a reflection of society. And you get all of those things that are happening in society. So all of the struggles that women face, no matter what industry they're in, they're, they're also in the comedy industry. You look at, you know, at the, the pay gap, less opportunities, less, less succession planning. Um, you know, any woman who's made it to the top has had to work five times as hard as the men in comedy. But it just in, in general terms of sexism, you've, you've got, you know, I started 10 years ago and, and I could pretty much guarantee every time I got off stage, someone would say to me, I don't normally find women funny but you were you're you quite funny mm. um that's the experience of probably most female comedians <laughs> um and and i think that you know when there's only one woman on stage and she bombs it was all female comedians sucked that night <laughs> and yet alone there's been you know 10 10 guys that have been on before and you know eight of those might have not, not have done so well but it was you know if the if one female um uh, bombs she stands out you know you stand out but you, you just look at um you know, audience people are less inclined to laugh uh, at women, um, so you have to be twice as funny. Um, you've got men who will yell out things while you're on stage, so you have to be able to handle that. But, you know, in a lot of these articles that are coming out at the moment, which is fantastic to see, you know, women in comedy speaking up, um, because I think that this has been something that really hasn't even been on the, dis- on the discussion table, um, is, you know, women, women um, speaking up about their experiences. But you, you also just look at um, the networking factor, so, you know, um, if the guys will go and play basketball together, women aren't invited. The guys will go and have a drink together, women aren't invited. So that's where you really you get gigs, you get opportunities, and, and that's something that, that women are missing out on. And I think that it really we're focusing on what women are doing in comedy, but really we should be focusing, focusing on what men are doing in comedy and what they're doing to combat it. Hmm. Um, I guess um, maybe going from there, what do you think, you know, you know, things can be practically done um, to make things better for females who are in the comedy world? Look, there's, the list is long. We're only got a short interview, but... Um, <laughs> uh, look, it, it, it's up to audience members because, you know, people are more likely to go and see a male comedian uh, as opposed to a female comedian. And I find women funnier. They've got more grit. By the time they've got to the stage, they've already had to deal with sexism in the general world, then they've already had to deal with sexism in comedy as well. So it's really, you know, this is really for people who are listening. Go and support women in comedy. I can guarantee you that most of the shows that I saw last year in the comedy festival that were women's were far far superior to men. Um, so it's, it's audience members. It's pe- getting people to go and see, see women and support women. 
Hmm. Right, do you have a question you'd like to ask, Zane? Not sure. No, I'm talking to Zane, um, the other, the other, the other, the other other hosts. Oh, hi, Zane. Hi, how's it going? Um, Good day. Yeah, just um, so I'm not 100% across the Louis C.K. thing, but I understand there's a culture of like. Uh, sexual abuse often for female comedians and it seems like what you're talking about uh, where it's it is difficult to network and women are in that place where you're um, finding it particularly difficult to try and um, angle for gigs and stuff uh, that that potentially creates the conditions where there's that, I guess, I don't know, vulnerability or whatever, where, where sexual assault can, can tend to happen? Yeah, look, any any group where you've got a power dynamic, um, which is every group that exists, really, <laughs> and the power dynamic is in men's favour, that, that leaves opportunity for, for abuse. So, um, but I think... The one thing that's combating that, in, in, and we're seeing that, you know, right across the last couple of weeks across Hollywood and, and you know, in, in, other, in other places as well, is that women are starting to speak up. Um, so, you know, women talk. And uh, so, in, you know, even in the Melbourne, in the Melbourne scene in the, in the last couple of years, women have spoken out about, you know, some people in the industry and, you know, on the quiet, people have kind of stopped giving them gigs. And, um, you know... It, 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 that those power dynamics exist because of the society that we live in. So we're not really going to see a huge change in comedy until we see a, a, a change, you know, right across every part of our society. Hmm. And is there a union uh, for comedians <laughs> or, or like no. a quasi? There most certainly is not a union. There is not a union in any place in the world <laughs> for <laughs> comedians. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it's unionising, but you've, you've got an industry that's completely, you know. Um, you know, it's it's not checked over in, in any way, shape, or form. But you know, unionising is is a way to go. But you, you know, you're looking at people who who just want to go and do a gig, and, and a lot of them performing for free. So you know, it's a, I mean, it's a crazy industry anyway. What? Why would you want to go and perform for free for ten years and then hopefully make money in ten years' time? Um, but yeah, unionising most definitely, and without a union. You know, join your union if you're <laughs> and you're not in comedy. Uh, but yeah, t- totally. Um, getting a union would be the, the first start. But also, too, women are banding together. So, yeah, you know, yeah. we um we have we have groups. You know, on uh, Facebook groups where we all talk to each other about who's who in the zoo and who to avoid and and who to look out for. Um, and so I guess it's um it's people speaking up. But it's it's not just that. You know, if if, if people who are listening in, if you go to a comedy gig and it's all men on the lineup, say something to say something to the promoter. You know, if you if you go and you see a man be offensive on stage, say something to the promoter, and it, and it also relies on audience um, speaking up as well. Mm. Yeah, because I think one um one of the you know one of the I think you know when it comes to you know male comedians making you know offensive you know jokes, we actually you know shouldn't tolerate that as as a society um, under the guise of this whole thing of you know political correctness and freedom of speech. Of course, the thing about um, this whole freedom of speech argument, especially in comedy, is actually doesn't really make much sense because freedom no. of speech is basically basically arguing that, you know, you shouldn't get arrested for what you say. Um, no one's arguing that we should be 
putting these male comedians in jail for making offensive jokes. We just should be sink. <laughs> we just should think they should get consequences for it, and that means basically oh, being this, caught. This up. whole freedom of speech thing is such bullshit. I mean, you, you're talking into a microphone. How much more freedom of speech do you need? And freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom of consequences. So hmm. if you're in, you know, I've I've been in comedy rooms, open mic rooms. Um, for a good 10 years of my life, and I've probably heard at least one rape joke per night. None of them have been any good. None of them have ever been funny. I think I might have laughed at a rape joke in 10 years, maybe once. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, it, what's giving the, the, the power to, to the men before they even go on stage is thinking that they have the entitlement to make those jokes. You know, one in three women have experienced sexual assault. You're offending three-quarters of your audience. Hmm. So, I mean, it's not just, you know, one in three women, it's, it's one in six men, one in three women. And so if you're making jokes and making light of sexual sexual assault, you're, you're offending half your audience anyway. It's in no one's best interest. And it's not going to prove that you're edgy. Proving you're edgy is crafting a great joke that everybody laughs at and everybody feels comfortable about and it's, and it's breaking those taboos. So, I mean, it even got to the point where I would sit, I, I dated a comedian uh, for most of the time when I first started out with comedy. It even got to the point where a guy would come out on stage and he would just rape, he would just lean into me and say, rape, because you could absolutely guarantee with the look on his face that he was going to try a rape joke. I mean, I think they've pretty much died off in the last couple of years. There was a bit of a scuffle in the Melbourne scene um, at the Melbourne Comedy Festival in 2016. Um, and since then, they've really died off. So hmm. speaking up and saying something does actually work. Yeah, hey, just a lot. One um, fourth thing before I ask you uh, the last question. Um, there is apparently sort of a union for media and entertainment. Um, yeah, it's called the Media and Entertainment and Arts Alliance. Yeah, um, and it's affiliated with the Australian Council of Trade Unions. I'm not sure if that's. I'm yep. not sure. If no, that's it doesn't. It really doesn't cover comedy. Yeah. So you, you mean you you you're looking at you know an industry where anyone can run a room. So I can just decide. Okay, I'm going to go down and see my mate who runs a pub down the street and run a room. Um, that, that's not unionised, and that's where, that's where the trouble is. You know, by the time I get down to that gig, I've already experienced your normal level of sexism, you know, being harassed on the street, being, you know, harassed walking into the pub, being harassed. So by the time women even get on stage, <laughs> by the time you've been before you've got there, you've already had to deal with life. Mm. Um, and and your, your level, you know, your normal levels of sexual, normal levels, like I'm normalising it, but um, your average levels of sexual, sexual harassment. And then you get on stage and you've got to deal with all of the extra shit. So, um, you know, if you, when you do see a woman in comedy, go and support her because that support means the world to her because you can guarantee that she's had a shit day. Mm-hmm. All right, so Spe- speaking of which, uh, yeah. have you got any gigs coming up? <laughs> I don't, actually. I'm taking a little bit of a break at the moment. Christmas is coming up, so it's a slow time of the year um, for comedians. Everybody starts having a little bit of a break. But um, I don't, but uh, you can go and look at my website if you like, kirstymack.com. <laughs> Yeah, nice. um, but yeah, look, I'm, I'm actually kind of focusing on, on a more activist side of it. You know, I started doing stand-up 10 years ago um, because I saw a woman on stage and um, a male comedian yelled out something pretty awful at her and I, and, I, and I thought to myself, wow, I wish I had that microphone. So when I first started doing stand-up, uh, my, my whole intention was, you know, it was to speak up for women, to, to, for a woman to have a, you know, a chance at a microphone. And so... Um, that kind of, now that I have that platform, um, it's kind of branched off into more activism. So really, you know, I'm, I, you know, I want to write more articles about, you know, what's going on with women in comedy and, um, how we can com- combat that stuff. So if you want to make Facebook friends with me, please go ahead. Hey. Well, I think that was, you've basically answered everything I was going to ask, which was any kind of final comments. Cause I, unless you have anything more to say, Kirsty, um, we can probably close the interview now. Oh, I have heaps more to say, but we'll, we'll, we'll 
Quite full disposal anyway. What, yeah. what do you think of the uh, marriage equality survey? We- oh, how good is it? I mean, when I, when I happened and, and the yes vote came out, I was down at um, the State Library and it was pretty, it was pretty emotional. And, mm. and um, I think we got to celebrate for a whole day where we just celebrated that Australia had said yes. But, you know, the next day you start thinking about all of the lives that have been touched um, by the campaign and, and, you know, people lost their lives, people people committed suicide. So mm. um, it's, a, it's as much as we can celebrate the Yes campaign, a lot of people have suffered in the interim. Mm. I think you made uh, you actually made, Chloe, the best comment on the Marriage Quality Survey. Um, I think you said something on Facebook along the lines of, oh, yes, it's like... Um, it's like it's a, little, for it's a little bit, yeah. It's a little bit like buying something on eBay. You know, um, we, when you're bidding for something on eBay, you think you're winning, but you're not really winning because if, if we paid too much for it, and we still have to wait for it to be delivered. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you um, very much, um, Kirsty, um, for being on a program. So it would be great to get kind of that interesting kind of um, perspective on the program, which we haven't actually covered before. So yeah, thank you very much. Uh, thanks, guys. Keep it real. Cheers. You too. Good. <laughs> Later. All right, Kirsty Mack there, a comedian on sexism in the comedy scene and combating that. Uh, and, yeah, you can check out Kirsty's website, kirstymack.com. Keep an eye out for gigs. And may I also say a massive thank you to Kirsty Mack, who has played a bunch of uh, Green Left um, comedy night fundraisers mm. over the years. Um, massively appreciated. Mm. So, yeah. Good to see too many too many dicks on the dance floor in the comedy scene. So it's good to see Kirsty Mack and some other staunch women, uh, yeah, mixing it up and bringing heaps of laughs. Right. So we have a quite like a few minutes. Um, what kind of news should we discuss? Um, I guess um, let's give a bit of an update on the refugee situation at this mm. point. Um, some of the updates I've seen is there hasn't been really much changes to the status quo, obviously. Um, but And the refugees are still suffering on Manus Island, um, you know, deprived of any food and water. They're just managing to make do with rainwater at this point. Um, but New Zealand has apparently offered um, $3 million to, um, to help with providing services in Manus Island, which is good. Um, then there's also the question of that deal um, that... Um, of New Zealand offering to take 150 refugees from Manus. Um, as far as you know, that, that deal does appear to you on the table, but there is very complex kind of diplomatic processes happening. Basically, Peter Dutton has almost conceded to actually admitting that the deal would be a good idea, but is now de- deferring to, oh, yes, but this would complicate Australian sovereignty relationship with New Zealand, basically kind of creating the threat. Um, the threat that of um, breaking any kind of relationship with New Zealand, diplomatic relationship with New Zealand and sort of playing kind of blackmail there. Mm. Um, but, of course, the fact that he has almost conceded um, to the idea um, does say does say something that the pre- that there is, um, the pressure is starting to mount on Dutton. I mean, they can't just... There's actually a limit to how cool this government can be, but I obviously kind of urge you... Um, if you can, to call up your MP. I don't really have the number in front of me. Google it. 
Google, Google it. People uh, get motivated. Um, call your MP, but also more importantly, attend the Refugee Rights Rally today at 5.30 at the State Library. And also keep an eye out for any kind of different actions that are happening um, over the next several weeks because there's lots of different local actions happening um, and lots of different protests. So, um, But the, more important, um, the most main one right now is um, the 5.30 protest at the State Library organised by Refugee Action Collective. Okay, so I'd like to thank all our guests um, for being on the program, Um, thank all the listeners, um, and stay tuned for next Friday. And also, now following this, will be Beyond Beyond Zero Zero Emissions. All right, see you next week. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show... And interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.